As you walked into the building, as you're preparing this morning, as you came in here, as you've already worshipped the Lord vocally, what are your expectations this morning? So as you gather together with your brothers and sisters in this environment, this is called the church, we have, we've been called out of the world and we are assembled together in the name of Jesus Christ. As you walk out, as you drive out of the parking lot today, what defines a successful gathering for you? Is it the worship? So as we sing vocal worship, some people, you know, some people don't feel like they've been to church until they've sung a hymn. Some people don't feel like they've been to church until they did an Irish jig. Some people don't feel like they've been to church unless they can feel that kick drum just thumping in their chest. It needs to be loud and exciting. Again, we have that full spectrum. And again, one way is not right over the other. When it comes to message, like when I, when I attend a fellowship, a gathering of believers on a Sunday morning environment like this, if the teacher does not open up the word of God and teach through a portion of the word of God, when I leave out of the parking lot, I don't feel like I've been to church. Again, that's, that's, that's me. Some people, they want, the, they want the great intro. They want the three points. They want the strong finish. All of it better be under 30 minutes, and we're out of here. And I feel like I've been to church. But as we sit in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, remember, he is dealing with their arrogance and their pride. And the issues that he's going to deal with is, I titled it, Worship. So these four chapters, this section of his letter, is all dealing with the behavior of believers as we come together in this corporate environment. Defining for us what a successful gathering looks like. Now, not all the nuances of, like, the teaching style or the worship style or the lighting style. Those are all, those are kind of cultural things. But in those cultural things, Paul is directly dealing with the culture of Corinth that is very different from our culture. So as we go through this passage today, I have to tiptoe through some of this because uh, just in this, in this section, there's a lot of words that can ruffle people's feathers. But uh, I'm not aiming to ruffle people's feathers. Paul's not able, aiming to ruffle people's feathers. The Holy Spirit is not. But again, God has created an order. He's created an environment. And overall, when we gather together to worship, we ought to expect decency and order Foundation stone of Jesus Christ, foundation stone of love for him and love for one another. And that's mainly what this passage is dealing with. So, chapter 11, we looked at the first verse last week, just this, become imitators of me, just as I also imitate Christ. And this old, that can be... You know, that's really following the end of the prior section before he steps into this next thing, but it definitely, it's flowing right into this conversation. So now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is is God. If you mark in your Bible, underline the head of Christ is God. Because that is, in, as we imitate Christ, that becomes the, that needs to be the lens, the perspective in which we're answering all of this. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying 
Having his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, just as I am shorn freshly this morning. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Anybody ruffled yet? This is all familiar text for all of you, I know, but... Come on, feel my pain a little bit. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What? Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came for man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things... Are, for God, are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Look at all these sinners in this room. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Asher, you hear that? <laughs> but if a woman, he's growing it for me, leave him alone. <laughs> but if a woman has long hair, It is a glory to her. Amen. Keep growing your hair, Julie. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, a lover of dispute, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. What on earth is going on? All right. This is where, like, guys, we've been talking about on, on our men's breakfast, we're going through a book talking about how to properly study the Word of God. One of the main points of that is you have to understand the context in which it was written, who it's being written to. And this is really important in this passage. If we don't understand the Corinthian culture, if we don't understand the Greco-Roman culture, none of this makes sense. So again, I said before, the head of Christ is God. We are to be imitators of Christ. So when we talk about this headship idea, it's a, an idea of source, and it's also an idea as source, a, it's an idea of authority, of rights, the same words that we were talking about last time. So I ask you the question, is it off and amiss to say that God the Father is the head of Jesus Christ, yes or no? Like, do, do any of us have a problem with that definition? Understanding the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these three persons of the Godhead are God. One is not greater than the other. They are equally God. Without one, there is no God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this is God. So is it wrong to say that the Son is in submission to the Father or the head of the Son is the Father? None of us have a problem with that. So if Jesus is our example, so as we talk about headship in the order in which God is created, 
We, we get our feathers ruffled in our culture because there's all these gender wars. And then you can sit in cultures throughout history. Often the, the males of our culture are domineering over the females of the culture in a variety of ways. And it's consistent throughout uh, man's history because man is filled with sin. But what's God's design and what's God's order and structure? So that's why Paul goes back to Genesis and the creation to say that who was created First, God created Adam. He created man. And again, when you read man and woman in this section, you have to read husband and wife. They're the same words in the Greek, and the translation, how it is translated, is dependent upon context. This is not to say, all you women, I am the head of you. I have a headship role in my relationship with my wife, with my bride. Now, in that, again, the argument is going back to Genesis, that God created Adam first as God's creating act. This is his structure. This is what he put into place. And as he looked at man, what did he say? It is not good for you to be alone. I will create a helper comparable to you. The woman was created for Adam. That's the argument that Paul is discussing as he's talking about order, decency and order as we gather together. So in this, you're also dealing with the cultural context. So most of us are very familiar that in a lot of ancient cultures and even modern cultures, a woman veils her hair. It's an object of lust in many cultures. For a woman's hair to be uncovered, it's like ooh-la-la kind of language. And that seems to be what's going on in Corinth. Greco-Roman culture, the upper class especially of this culture, the women would have their hair piled high. They've spent a lot of time on their hair and they want to show it off. So as they're entering into fellowship, this seems to be what the discussion is revolving around. For the Corinthians, in their culture, in their environment, as the church is gathering together, there are women who are praying and who are prophesying in the church. And hold on to that, because at the end of today, we're going to get in the section where it says for women to be silent in the church. And what is all that about? So, it's not in regards to women praying in church. It is not in regards to women prophesying in church. Because right here, when a woman prays, when she prophesies, let her head be covered. So there is a cultural issue that is going on here. There is also a biblical issue in regards to the structure in which God is placed. Now as we looked around the room, there's not a single head covered in this room. Why? It's not our culture. So you can, say that you can go back to the 50s where all the men were clean cut, right? What happened in the 60s? Some rebellion to the culture. Men started growing their hair out. In the 80s, what did the guys start looking like? It's all the hair bands with the big hairspray. And guys are wearing more makeup than girls. The 90s just totally messed up. The 2000s, what happened? We started growing it on top when we started growing these big old beards because it needed to be longer. In the, I guess all party in the front now, right? Not the party in the back, but the party in the front. Yeah, these, are all, these are all cultural distinctions. Here, in some... Uh, I've heard it taught recently, or just spoken recently, that as believers of Jesus Christ, in the culture in which we find ourselves, we ought to demonstrate a respect for the culture. 
And that is ultimately what Paul is getting at. As the church gathers together, there needs to be a respect for the culture, not only the culture that God has created and the environment that God has created, but also the culture in which the Corinthians find themselves. A lot of this is believed to be linked to the pagan worship of the time. So the pagan worshipers, men were covering their heads and praying. Again, this has always confused me too. When you watch Jews pray, what are, the, what are the Jews at the Western Wall? What are they doing? They have a prayer shawl over their head. It's, it's always totally confused me. You watch all the New Testament movies, the Pharisees, all that. They all have their head, heads covered when they're praying. What is it in the New Testament here, Paul giving this instruction that men ought to have their head uncovered? That to me, again, that, that's, that's not dealing with Jerusalem culture. That's dealing with Corinthian culture. And that's what... For me, it gives all that weight and the gravity to he's dealing with some cultural issues. So when it's saying to judge for yourselves, is this proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Looking to nature, even Paul, you know, he's, he's kind of um, not disagreeing with himself, but the, the order in which God created. Yes, he created Adam first and then he created Eve and he created Eve for Adam, but at the same time, ever since then, Man has been dependent upon woman as his source. So there is an interdependency between husband and wife. There's an interdependency between male and female. And that's why this, the gift of celibacy, it's, it is a spiritual gift of God because he created us to be joined together as husband and wife. And it's a special gift for somebody to remain single. So we are interdependent on each other. So as they're gathering together, in decency and order, in their culture, in their context, it's pay attention to the roles between male and female, between husband and wife, according to God's creation, according to God's definition of what those roles look like. I'm going to, I'll, I'll touch on it now because we're going to be really rushed when it comes to the end. Um, but when it comes to like women being silent in the churches, this, if Julie were to, if I were to say something wrong, like if Julie just totally disagreed with everything that I said right there, and she were to stand up right now and she were to correct me, how would you feel in the room if my wife were to stand up right now and correct me publicly? Everybody would kind of go, ooh, right? Now in the room, I also have my dad. And I have my father-in-law. Now, if, though, if, either, if my dad were to stand up right now and say, son, that wasn't right, how would you feel? You'd still feel like, ooh, Blake's getting from his dad. You'd still feel it a little bit for me. But would you feel shame for my dad? Would you feel shame in the relationship? You'd, you'd feel a lot more respect. Like a, a father is correcting his son, uh, there's, there's the mutual relationship in the Lord, there's, there's a right thing there. But if my wife were to stand up and do it, there'd be, we'd all feel that culturally. We'd all feel that, that pain in that role. Now that doesn't mean that when we go home, that Julie doesn't sit me down on the couch and say, listen, mister, that was wrong, and you're going to go back and apologize to everybody, and you're going to correct yourself. Because we have that freedom with each other. 
That subject matter that I just talked about, that's going to get into this silence issue at the end of chapter 14. But let's keep going. All right. So we're talking about decency and order as we gather together. And again, if I just confuse anybody, if you think that I'm wingnut, come talk to me later. I'm sure most of you have already studied out all of this yourself. Now, verse 17, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse, there's something going on. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. So this, uh, earlier on, remember when he's beginning the letter, the divisions are in regards to the different teachers in the, in the church. I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Peter. That kind of division. Here the division is between classes. It's between the rich and the poor. So listen to this. There's divisions in the body of Christ in their social structure. And the social structure is along the lines of classes. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized, may be manifest among you. So again, there's elevating of certain individuals over and against others. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So there's going to be different types of gatherings of the body. There's going to be this kind of environment. Sometimes we gather together for a meal, and hopefully we'll be able to do that before the summer. Probably not, but it would be really awesome to just sit down and have a meal together. That's my opinion. All right. This culture and this context, as the Passover meal is celebrated in evening, the church is gathering together in remembrance of the Passover meal, doing this in remembrance of Christ. So they're coming together in the evening. And for the wealthier class, 
They're able to get ready and arrive early, and they're not waiting. They're already eating the meal, drinking the wine, having a good old time. And the workers, the lower class, those who are working from morning until night, and then have to go clean themselves up and get to church, when they show up at this gathering, this Passover celebration-type meal, there's no food left. They have nothing They've come together to fellowship, and now there's this, there's this separation and dis- distinction among the classes. And this is why Paul is saying, you know, that I'm not praising you in this behavior. Because what is the purpose with what we're doing? We, are, we have gathered together in the name of Jesus. And as we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are seeking to imitate Jesus Christ. We are looking to him as the head. And we are told that we are now all one body, and he's going to get to this description in a minute. We're all one. When we gather together, we're not supposed to have all these cultural distinctions, class distinctions, male and female distinctions, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. We all gather together as one. And this is where he begins to teach what Jesus' focus about this Passover meal was. As he gathered with his disciples on that night, before he was betrayed, before he was crucified, what is he teaching? Here I am. I am God in the flesh. And the purpose in which I came was to give my body over to be broken for you for the remission of sins. As they're sitting down at this meal, as Jesus looks up into heaven and he gives thanks to his father for the food that he has provided, he breaks this bread and they all participate in the bread together. Take, eat, this is my body. And as they consume it, they are one together. The imagery of unity and oneness in Christ based upon his sacrifice. Usually, again, in this meal, the bread is broken early, the cup is blessed at the end, the cup is lifted up, giving thanks to God for the fruit of the vine. Take, drink. This is my blood. This is my blood of the new covenant. You sit in in the Passover meal and the instructions that were given as they are fleeing out of Egypt under the powerful right hand of God. The instruction was... um, that the blood sacrifice that went over the doorposts and the lentils, that the, this angel of destruction was going to pass over the blood because the blood is what covered, the blood is what protected. Here's my blood of the new covenant. There is a sacrifice to seal this new covenant, the covenant found in the blood of Jesus Christ in his death. And again, this is Jeremiah chapter 31 that talks about the new covenant, that he is going to give us a new heart and a new mind. All of this imagery going on. So as we gather together and we participate in communion, there ought to be zero divisions and distinctions amongst the body of Christ. So the emphasis upon what we do as we gather together. And again, this is, this is cultural. Um, you know, it would be, it, we would we'd have more like of a, an annual Seder supper to understand what the Jews are doing as they're celebrating a Passover meal. Um, 
we've lost a lot of this Eastern culture meal kind of stuff. So when we gather together and we have communion, you know, we're just taking these, this, it's a symbolic act of remembrance. But in that symbolic act of remembrance, we are proclaiming to ourselves, we are pl- proclaiming to one another that Jesus died for all. He didn't die for some. He didn't die just for the rich. He didn't die just for the poor. He died for all. So there's this unity in it. So, therefore, when it says that those who are uh, partaking of this bread and drinking of the cup in an unworthy manner, being guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, that's the issue that's going on here. It's not talking about having sin in your heart. It's not talking about, and again, a lot of times the teaching on this is as we approach the Lord's table and as we participate in communion together to examine your heart, to make sure that you have a right relationship with the Lord, to make sure that you're not harboring any sin. Lord, search me and know me and see if there is any wicked way within me. That is still valid. That is still real. But the emphasis of this teaching is he who is eating and drinking in an unworthy manner is he who is eating and drinking without respect of their brothers and sisters that are around them. That's the context. So then when it shifts into that for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep, many are dead. (sighs) Two ways to look at that. Paul is either being spiritual. Remember earlier on in this letter, he's talking about the weak brother, the weak sister that doesn't have full knowledge and not able to eat of this meat that was offered to an idol. So it could have a spiritual idea That those who are not discerning the Lord's body, they're weak, they're immature, they're sick in their relationship. There are some who are even asleep, they're dead on their feet, so to say. That's one way to look at it. And then the other is just the very real practical that the idea would be that the Lord is withholding the supernatural gift of healing from the Corinthian church because as they're gathering together, they're gathering together essentially in their flesh. They're not gathering together in the name of Jesus. So Jesus is withholding that miracle, that gift of healing. Where do you line up on it? I line up on the second side because it seems to be the most straightforward. At the same side, I can see the spiritual nature of that also. And this is when this the conversation now steps into the supernatural gift of the the gifts of the Holy Spirit, these gifts of grace, talking about those things that are of the Spirit. And let's just all confess God has created us with senses to interact with this physical world. Sight, smell, hearing, touch, and taste. These are the things that God has given to us, senses that he has given to us to understand the physical world in which we live. It is demanded for us to be born of the Spirit, to be born from above, to understand and discern spiritual things. And that's where this conversation is shifting into. But we all have to confess, as we start talking about the things of the Spirit, always weird. Because we have no definition. Anytime that God performs a miracle... There's no definition for it. Somebody who is sick is now healed. We have no definition for it. It's, it's weird. It's strange. Somebody who speaks in tongues. Somebody who is speaking in a prophecy. All these kinds of things. It is outside of our natural ability and is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So anytime we lock into this conversation, 
We're always talking about weird stuff because spiritually discerned, not of the natural man. So chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. So literally those things which are from the spirit. Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And as he, as he begins this, talking about who they used to be and in the culture in which they live, uh, the pagan religious worship of the time had all these supernatural dynamics to it, just as the church has all these supernatural dynamics to it. And he is making a very clear distinction between the dumb idols, the mute idols, literally, those things which are just, you know, there's a demon behind it, um, those things that are being done to the flesh and empowered by Satan, in contrast with the Spirit of God. Nobody can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, there are diversities, literally divisions, distributions, classifications, different apportions. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of service, ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, the effect of the work, but it is to each one, uh, but the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And that's, that is the overarching principle as we travel through the next three chapters. The manifestation, the visible manifestation of the Spirit is given to each individual for the profit, for the benefit of all, not for the benefit of the individual to which that gift was given. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the same spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all of these things, distributing each one individually as he wills. So the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, a person, not just some kind of power. Now he's going to get into this, this metaphor of the body. And again, remember, overarching context here is talking about order and decency as we gather together as the body of Christ. For as the body is one, so our, our physical bodies, and has many members, all different kinds of parts, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And of all, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Is, is it therefore not of the body? No. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? No. 
the whole body were an eye. That's a nice picture. Where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. God, in creating our bodies, has placed each one of the parts in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, greater value. And on our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed, literally, he united, he mixed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism, no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So all this metaphor in regards to our physical body. Now, you are the body of Christ. And members individually. As God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administration, variety of, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Principle. Earnestly desire the best gifts the greater, the superior gifts. And now I show you a more excellent, and this is the, where we get the word hyperbole from, a more excellent way, something that is exceedingly and extraordinary beyond all the lists of gifts that we just talked about. The chapter of love, first chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, just noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. That's a, to me, that's a really astonishing sentence too because isn't that bestowing your goods to feed the poor, isn't that an act of love? Giving your body to be burned? You know, is that not an act of love? But again, we can go through all these motions and not have the love of God as its motivation, as its, as its foundation, and there's no benefit. Love, definition, God is love, remember this. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. 
is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things. Literally, it's a covering. Covers all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures, remains all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, these will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then, I love this verse, then face to face. That is the greatest hope of my heart is to see God face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Can't wait. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love. And this word is, it's to chase it. It's a, the word is used in a hunt. It's also in its context, in the negative, it's persecute. So it's a very powerful word that we are to hunt and chase and pursue love in, in all of our actions and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So I want to pause here and let's talk about context. Paul is talking about this, the whole idea of what worship in its entirety looks like as we gather together. Not in our ideas, not in our cultural ideas, but as God defines these things. There is an order in which God is created. As we gather together, we are gathering together in the name of Jesus. We are remembering Jesus. We are remembering his teachings. We are remembering his actions. We are remembering that he is coming. And we are proclaiming that we have all been made part of this one body. And all of our diversity through one Lord, through one God, through one spirit. And in this unity, the reality of distinctions and divisions within the gathering ought not to be and those things ought to be corrected whenever they well up their ugly head as we talk about all these different gifts that the spirit manifests himself according to his will in our presence whether it's it's Again, at any time throughout our Christian walk, as the Holy Spirit is revealing himself, our actions, our behaviors, these gifts that he gives, are acting them out, are following Jesus, are serving of the Lord and serving one another. Our use of the gifts which have been given are always supposed to be for the benefits of the other always motivated through this foundation of love now we can all agree that we can all say amen to that but then the reality of what does this look like as often as we gather together why did divisions happen in churches why does one church pick up this rock and throw it at the head of the church down the street 
All these divisions, all these distinctions, it ought not to be so as we gather together because the body of Christ is not divided. Now that doesn't excuse heresy and all of that kind of stuff, but when we sit in the definition of love here in this 13th chapter of this letter to the Corinthians, it is an awesome declaration of who Jesus Christ is and who we are to be in him, realizing that all of the gifts that have been provided, these things are all temporary. The greatest thing that needs to be demonstrated in our midst is not the gift of prophecy. It's the action of love. At the same time, not ignoring the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. And that's why pursue love, but still desire the spiritual things but especially that you may prophesy. And this, this is a word of the Lord to me specifically. I don't speak in tongues. I've never spoken in tongues. I have asked God a thousand times to give me the gift of tongues. Lord, he's never given me the gift. Last time, again, starting the book of Acts, I think about every time I get into the book of Acts because you watch God pour out these different gifts. God, I'd love to receive this gift. Anytime, I'm willing, Lord, you just let loose. And this time it was, Blake, I, don't want, I want you to stop asking me for the gift of tongues. But I do want you to ask me for the gift of prophecy. And this is why. That as we gather together, he who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. So it's a true gift, it's a valid gift, and it's an important gift. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to all men. Uh, the, the Lord's response to me in all of this, just in, as I am speaking, my role is to speak in a way that builds you in your relationship in Jesus Christ. My, my speech to you ought to be in a way that is exhorting you, that is admonishing you to continue to know the Lord and to follow the Lord. As you're struggling, whether it's cultural things or physical things or personal things, preaching comfort and communicating comfort. And again, when it comes to the gift of prophecy too, it's not this. It is the authoritative declaration of God. In the Old Testament, what does a prophet do? King James, it's thus saith the Lord. This is what God said, and he's coming with the message of God, with all the authority of God. It's not, well, I think God just told me to come and tell you that this would be a good idea for you to think and consider and that kind of stuff. Like, I don't want, as I pray for the gift of prophecy, that's what I'm asking God to do, that as I teach his word, Lord, let me teach it with your power, with your authority, so that every individual believer and the believers together will be built up, exhorted, comforted. He who speaks with a tongue edifies himself. There is a self-building there, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Again, this is all decency and order within the public gathering. I wish you all spoke with tongues. Amen, me too. But even more, that you all prophesied. Whether you're speaking the word in power or the Lord is revealing something about the future that we all need to hear May the gift of prophecy be in action in our midst. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, all right, we got eight minutes. You ready? If I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? 
unless I speak either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. Even things without life, whether a flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? How will you know the tune unless it's in order? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world. There are over 7,000 spoken languages in the world today. And none of them is without significance. They all have meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner, a barbarian to him who speaks. And he who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, and here's the major principle, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. And that should be underlined and highlighted in your Bibles. Let it be for the edification, the building up of the church, all of us, that you seek to excel. You should seek to excel. You should seek to grow. You should seek to mature. You should seek spiritual gifts. And all of this, as you were seeking Jesus, that you were submitting yourself to the will of the Holy Spirit of what he wants to give to you, and that as you're seeking, the motivation behind it is love for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. I don't have a clue what I just said. I don't have a clue what you just said either, Blake. I know, just keep... Hang with me. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, you're speaking in tongues. How will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen? I don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't know what your, what spirit is that? I want to amen your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say. For indeed... You indeed give thanks well. Again, this isn't, this isn't uh, condemning or anything. It's, it's good. But have attention on others. The other is not edified. I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than y'all. In the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than ten thousand words in a tongue that's powerful right there brethren do not be children in understanding however in malice be babes interesting that malice and understanding are held in contrast there i'll let you study that out but in understanding be mature in the law it is written with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. This is out of Isaiah. Listen to the with the men of other tongues that the Lord sends. This is the Assyrians. 
His children would not hear the prophets that were sent to speak the word of God in authority, as thus saith the Lord to them. So the Lord said, I am going to send others of other lips, the Assyrians, they are going to come and speak to you. And yet for all that, they still didn't hear, even when judgment came. So the therefore statement, tongues, they're for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So in a gathering like this, they're, they're assigned to the unbelievers, evidence of the truth. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, all of us right now just stand up and speak in tongues. There's an unbeliever in here, and yeah, I think you're all nuts. And there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers. Will they not say that you were out of your mind? I'm a believer in Jesus, and I'd say that you're all out of your mind. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convicted by all. He is, convicted, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. And when we talk about unbelievers and even believers, Lord, may you reveal the secrets of our hearts. May you reveal them to us, Lord, so that we can confess, so that we can repent, so that we can fall down on our face before you, worship you, to possess your salvation, to possess your power to follow you, and to go amongst all and report that God he is truly in this place. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, and each in turn. Again, this is, this is the order of the house churches gathering at this time. If anybody wants to stand and speak tongues, hey, I'm all for it, but we want to be everything done in decency and in order, so let there be an interpreter also. I believe all of these gifts are valid for today, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Hold on to that keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. Is that really from the Lord or not? But if anything is revealed to another who sits by that the first keeps silent because the Lord is speaking to the group through this person. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Again, um, you're not out of control. You are in control of your body, of your mouth, Fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches. Glad I don't have time to teach on this. For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. I brought this up earlier, what it would be like for Julie to stand up and correct me publicly. That's the idea of what's going on. The cultural context of the day is that the women were uneducated in comparison to the men. The women were not sent to get 
theological training. The men were sent to get theological training. Um, in an environment, in a gathering like this, it was part of the gathering for individuals to stand up and ask questions of those who were teaching. At the same time, there was such a thing as a stupid question. If somebody stood up and asked a question of division and asked a, asked a question of, of ignorance and that kind of stuff, it was shameful for that person to do so. So there's cultural distinctions. The other idea here is that there was a separation of the sexes. So you have one wife yelling down her husband, hey, ask this. It was considered to be disruptive. There's different ideas in this. But again, it's not women can't speak in churches because again, the permission was already seen earlier that women are already praying and prophesying in churches. And remember, this is Corinth out of which are Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla is always elevated in that position as a, as a powerful woman of God within the body of Christ. Or did the word come originally from you? Or was it only you that it reached? And again, this is the pride that he is correcting. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Again, that position of prophetic and a apostolic authority as Paul is writing this but if anyone is ignorant let him be ignorant therefore brethren desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues let all things be done in decency and in order worship team come on up and as they come up we'll close I know that that's fast I want to get that all out in one context because the whole context is all dealing with what worship looks like as we gather together and the emphasis again I asked this question earlier but as you walk out today what is the definition of a successful worship experience as we would define for us. And I think it, it comes out in multiple pieces. For me personally, the definition of success is every single soul that crosses over the threshold of this building as often as we gather to God, as often as we gather together in the name of Jesus, that every single individual soul fellowships with, encounters, participates in the life of Jesus and Jesus alone. And as each one individually is encountering God, worshiping God, repenting towards God, confessing towards God, hearing God's voice, hearing his correction, hearing, his correction, hearing the, the call of what the next steps are moving forward, that our fellowship would also be with one another, that nobody walks out unloved, that nobody walks out feeling like they were of a lower class than everybody else in the room but that there is true unity here, that there is true diversity here, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are being manifested according to the will of God, not according to the will of the flesh, but that as God gives to each one of you individual gifts, the gifts that he gives to you, that you would intentionally use them in service to God and in service to one another. That through love, that foundation of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, that each one of us would be built up, that we would be encouraged and exhorted and admonished, and then every single one of us would be comforted in the name of Jesus. To me, that's the definition of success, regardless of what the nuances look like. In Jesus' name, amen.